0: The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy.
2: Welcome to the 44th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Across the expanse of mankind's time on this planet, temples have been erected as a place at one time to house the gods, and later as a place of worship. When Charles Beach conceived this golfing temple, he conceived it for Chicago. His vision was that of a facility that would act as a compass, leading golfers to their golfing home. In part one of this two-part podcast, we explore the birth of Olympia Fields and end with its near extinction. We discuss its vision and the brilliant men and women that made it possible. In part two... Due out later this week, we dive into the majors, the master plans for the restoration, and how to best celebrate this historic club. Before we start the show, I want to give a brief acknowledgement to our sponsor, Ryan Healthcare. Ryan Healthcare is a subsidiary of Ryan Companies US Inc., one of the largest real estate developer construction companies in the United States. Ryan Healthcare is a national real estate development design, construction, and building management company that can deliver your next medical office or surgery center anywhere in the United States. Full service, one source, partnership. For more information on Ryan Healthcare, check out ryanhealthcare.com or email the president of Ryan Healthcare, Mike McMahon at mike.mcmahon, that's spelled M-C-M-A-H-A-N at ryancompanies.com. If you reach out to him, please be sure to mention the show. Today on our show, we have two special guests Bob Topel, the golf historian Olympia Fields, and golf course architect Andy Staples, who's been hired to master plan the restoration of Olympia Fields Country Club. I would be remiss if I didn't send a special thanks out to Tim Cronin, whose book, Golf Under the Clock Tower 100 Years at Olympia Fields was instrumental in my research for this podcast. If you want to learn more about Olympia Fields, it's a great place to start. Now, without further delay, let's jump right in to my conversation with Bob and Andy. Bob and Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the 44th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to be here, Connor.
2: You know, Bob, before we start, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do?
0: Um, well, what I do professionally is I'm an economics professor at the University of Chicago. And then on the side, I'm the president of the Olympia Fields Country Club Historic Landmark Foundation. And that's a uh, 5013C that's devoted to preserving the, the, and, and restoring the, the historic assets of uh, Olympia Fields. Um, we are... When I say historic landmark, we've been designated a National Historic Place here at Olympia Fields because of the importance of the club to the social and golfing history of, of Chicago area.
2: Bob, when did that 50C get formed? How long? When did it get formed, and how long have you been the president?
0: Uh, I've been the president since it got formed. We formed it in 2016. We were designated a National Historic Place back around 2000. So, uh, you know, to have an organization like this is actually sort of a big deal for the club because, as we'll discuss later, this club used to be much bigger than it is. And so we have the responsibility of taking care of an enormous clubhouse that, fortunately for us, is a National Historic Place. And so it's worthy of preservation. There's a public interest in it.
2: Absolutely. And, and how do you go about doing that on a, let's let's just say, an annual basis what, what's the impact of that organization within the club?
0: Well, it, if, if you have a look at our club, our clubhouse. It's, it's stunning. I have been there. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's 110,000 square feet. The locker men's locker room alone is 22,500 square feet. So most private clubs would fit inside our locker room. Um, we have a complete stucco exterior on a Tudor Revival clubhouse, and it's high maintenance. It takes a lot of penicillin at these at this point in its life. Um, so people can contribute to the foundation, and what the foundation can do is uh, provide grants to the preservation of buildings in the Olympic Fields area, actually. Um and so, historic buildings—it has to be of some sig- historic significance,
2: like outside uh, which, of the actual club. Well, we we could, yeah, we
0: could come into who the architect was and that sort of thing, um, because he designed not only the clubhouse here, but the clubhouse at Flossmore and at Ravisloe. Um But when when something that preserves and or protects the or restores some historic aspect of the club. Not the golf courses, we don't go there. Um, uh, The foundation can then fund that as a grant. So we would get a grant proposal that we're going to restore, one of our big projects was to restore the windows in our famous Normandy room that had been boarded up in the 1970s. They're leaded windows, they're beautiful. And so we uncovered them and the foundation through contributions was able to bring those back. And it was actually nominated for uh, one of the most historic restorations in the state of Illinois for that year. So that's the kind of thing that we can do as a foundation to preserve and protect the club, the club's assets, uh, the socially important assets.
2: Let me ask you one more question on that, Bob. So the foundation, uh, what is the primary way of raising funds for the foundation? Do you have like charity tournaments or uh, d- is it outside contributions or how do you do that?
0: It's it's contributions from our members and outsiders so that when people come to the club, they can contribute. Um, but our members are very supportive. They're very appreciative of the history of the club. Um, we're, you know We're very proud of what this club is and has been in the past. And you'll see it in little things around the club. Um as we'll talk about later, the club used to have four golf courses, but now has two. Um so that at most clubs the 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 bar or grill is called the nineteenth hole. Well here it was originally called the seventy third hole because it it. I did holes. not know that.
2: That's very cool.
0: But it's still called the seventy third hole. And Um, we take that as a defining characteristic of the club that we've got this legacy. Oh,
2: that's great. So our our second guest here is Andy Staples. Andy, you're like famous. I don't know if I need to intro you. Uh, Andy Staples, golf course architect, extraordinaire, friend of mine, uh, a little biased. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Andy. Uh,
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for that, Connor. Uh, So, Andy Staples, golf architect based in Scottsdale, Arizona, recently uh, voted in uh, by the Olympia Fields Country Club as their consulting architect on both the north and south courses. Uh, so i am been a golf, or, golf course architect for about 26 years. I originally grew up in the Midwest outside of Milwaukee, uh, pretty familiar with courses back in the Midwest, but I do work all throughout the United States, fortunate to do work Uh, here in my home state, Arizona, and as far down southeast as Florida, and working in Cincinnati, Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit. Uh, So uh, just happy to be here on the podcast talking about Olympia Fields. It's been fun.
2: Andy, before we jump into Olympia Fields, I was wondering, uh, one of the primary restorations you did, probably I I assume helped you in um, working with Olympia Fields, was at Meadowbrook, which is a Willie Park course if you wouldn't mind, if you could just jump into some of the work you did there to restore the Willie Park in Meadowbrook.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Meadowbrook Country Clubs outside of Detroit in a town called Northville built in 1916. Uh, Willie Park Jr. actually originally built six holes. He routed all 18 holes. Uh, we don't have a plan for the all 18 holes. He only built six holes. So one of One of our challenges was to try to understand kind of the evolution of how that all occurred. And so uh, our project went through a complete master plan. Uh, We had some issues with some, you know, like a lot of golf courses up there, some issues with uh, the Poa Annua, the drainage, the things They had a bunch of winter kill over one really poor winter. And so we voted, the membership voted to completely close the course and uh, really I would say, reimagine what Meadowbrook Country Club uh, was and what it could be, and we used Willie Park Jr. as our kind of our masthead, our directional uh, beacon, so to speak, for what we wanted the course to look like. So we, it certainly wasn't a restoration by any stretch. It was more of a, a renovation with with him in mind. Uh, we did a bunch of touring around a lot of other of his courses, and took back what we thought were a lot of the good. Ah, uh, really interesting parts of his courses, and then we kind of also went, you know, a little bit more creative and went out and did some other things as well. But uh, I couldn't have been happier with not only how the the club handled the renovation, both in terms of voting it in and supporting me and my, you know, our our overall plan, but also since then, they've done a, just a spectacular job seeing that course through to to full maturation and establishment it's just it plays perfect the drainage is working the grasses are working uh it's just a lot of fun to play so one of the best things you could ever say about any of my golf courses and i think a lot of architects would agree with this but for me when you play meadowbrook uh, a lot of people come off that golf course and say they just had a blast that it was so much fun and so i'm i'm really proud of that
2: well, and for folks that want to learn a little bit more about Meadowbrook, obviously there's a website, but I would also encourage you to check out the fried egg. I believe the fried eggs run a piece on it. Uh, they've had some aerial footage uh, and, and perhaps an interview as well with you. Is that correct?
1: That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I definitely ask people to dive into that if you want to see more about it. Uh, I was unfortunately going to make that trip up there last year, but got rerouted. And of course, COVID hit us this year. So thanks for nothing, COVID. Wait.
1: <laughs> you're you're welcome we'll get back. we'll
2: get, get, back get out, out there for sure um let's jump into the history of olympia fields uh bob can you share a little bit with our audience about the establishment of olympia fields country club uh, why did the founders feel like they needed a new club in an area that had 50 courses dotting the landscape of chicago
0: well then obviously 50 wasn't enough um and uh it, at the time the uh there were clubs out there were clubs to the north and the 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 all the railway stops here in the south side of the city were developed one at a time as the as clubs started going out so when i lived in flossmore which is a town next door there uh in the 1990s there were five private clubs within a mile of my house and four of them in a row were uh located at uh Uh, train stops that were all put in in the Illinois Central under the influence of people who were founding these clubs. So in 1913, legend goes, a guy named Charlie Beach, who was a bit of a 'er ne'er-do-well, came out and found, uh, ostensibly found the land here south of Flossmoor Country Club that was carved by Butterfield Creek and he had a vision for a giant golf club, sort of the Pinehurst of the Midwest, if you will, but um, and uh, four golf courses and so on. And eventually, a group of founders was put together. In 1915, they incorporated the club. And one of the first things they did, because they wanted it to be so big, with four golf courses and 110,000 square foot clubhouse. Is they recruited Amos Alonzo Stagg, the famous football coach at the University of Chicago, who was a rock star in the day. Um, he was all over the newspapers to be their first president. And
2: uh, was this on the? Was this literally at the very beginnings of the club that they went after yeah. Stagg? They went after
0: Stagg in 1916, um, when the first. Golf course had been sketched by Harry, or one golf course had been sketched by Harry Collis. It was basically a goat ranch, um, but they went on got Stag, and he was he provided real leadership. It wasn't he wasn't a figurehead. It wasn't like he was down at the university or off in Pinehurst in in his during his winters. Um, he was a real leader for the club, and he established the character of the club as being. Not just a country club, but a place where sports and competition were really, um, uh, really emphasized.
2: Do you do you think they they knew they were going to get that out of Stag? Or do you think initially it was, I, I, I don't want to call it like a figurehead, but essentially a figurehead for the club that would attract members because this famous coach was going to be a president? Did they know that they were going to get a, a hands-on president?
0: You know, I, you're asking me for an opinion, but my opinion is that w- was that they would know. Because I think the real mover and shaker behind the club was a guy named George C. Nimons, and he was a famous architect. He de- designed the uh, Sears headquarters in Chicago and various other buildings, famous buildings in the Chicago area and, and across the country. And he was a good stick. He was a good player. He belonged down the road to Flossmoor, and he finished second in the Flossmoor Club Championship to, you might say, well, so what? And, well, the guy who beat him was Warren Wood, who finished second in the U.S. Amateur that year, which I think was 1910. So Nimmin's would have both known about the land, but important to your question, he was a very good friend of Stagg. Um, and so I think he was the guy who really recruited Stag, and he would have known Stag's character. And from everything you might know about Stag, Stag would not have taken something on and said, well, you just use my name and, and, uh, do your business. He would have, if he agreed to do something, he would have jumped in as a leader. And that's what he did.
2: So at the, at the very onset, uh, let's just say in the beginning with Beach, it was, was it always considered to be this? this four-course mega structure country club?
0: Yeah, as far as anybody can tell, they, th- they said from the beginning, well, they did, they bought the land. They bought enough land for four golf courses.
2: And so it's, it's always, like the Texas model of design, go big or go home.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and they, they decided to get the best architects they could get. And they always reserved the land for what is now the North Course, which was called number four back in the day. They always reserved that land for the truly championship course. So they started with Bendelow on course number one, uh, Willie Watson on course number two. Um, He of course did Olympic club and and, uh, various others on the west coast and throughout the Midwest. And then they considered Donald Ross for number, well, I should say that uh, Bendelow and and Watson collaborated, it is said, on number three. And then they went out and got Willie Park for number four after considering Donald Ross. So they chose Park over Ross.
2: How did they accomplish such a lofty endeavor in the middle of the countryside, right? This is in the middle of nowhere, 1915, when the idea of even owning a Model T Ford was still in its infancy. I, 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 put, I did a little research in the, on this just to put it in perspective for the folks listening Uh, in 2015, Ford sold 308,000 Model Ts across the country. And it wouldn't be in the 1920s that they sold over a million cars. So by 1915, 1916, only like one in 100 Americans had a car. How did members find their way into the middle of nowhere? Am I wrong? It's in the middle of nowhere around 1916.
0: Around 1960, yeah, it's 23 miles south of Chicago. Without south, a car, that's, that's an
2: endeavor, right? I mean, that's, well, a, that's a risk. Especially
0: because there was, there was no expressway or anything like that. But remember what I said, they tra- all the clubs were located on the train stops, and so they added a new train stop, and back then, as it is today, the train stops basically in the parking lot of Olympia Fields. So people and and in those days they ran special trains out from the city to the club. So as the club as the club grew, people would get on downtown, and it would basically be a nonstop or a couple of stops out to Olympia. They'd play golf all day, and then they'd get on the train in the evening and go home where they do much more than play golf because the club had an orchestra and all kinds of things. So there's a lot happening out here.
2: So it's very much that um, old world transportation, the Scottish model. We're going to take a train to the course, take a train back. That's, that's literally exactly. how we envision it in the early days.
0: Right. And so they were able to have 1,200 families, most of, which, most of whom came from the, the fairly prosperous south end of the city. Because in those days the South End was the industrial part of Chicago and there were a lot of well-to-do people
2: and, and when when did they envision the clubhouse I mean the the clubhouse is over a hundred thousand square feet uh, was it was it modeled that large from the beginning or is that something that transitioned into the 20s, 30s etc
0: um, it was. All the evidence indicates it was modeled to be that large from the beginning. The, the, uh, as I mentioned, Nimens was an architect, and we were able to find some of the, his original papers and articles that he'd written. And one of them, I think it was 1917, in the Architectural Digest. Not Architectural Digest, uh, something, some architect's publication uh, with a name that's close to that. And it showed his vision for the uh, for the clubhouse at the time. It was going to be much more Greek looking, but it was going to be enormous, with a lake in front of it and all sorts of things. And but they changed it eventually to Tudor revival, but the the size remained the same because they always planned on those uh, twelve hundred families that would join the club.
2: So twelve hundred families, but there are also overnight rooms. Correct? How many? Do we know how, how many overnight rooms did Olympia Fields have in its heyday? Do we know? It depends
0: on how you count, but um, we'll count this way. It was about 72, one for each hole. So
2: you could come
0: out and spend the weekend. Um, I mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the train rides out. And it, so it, at one point in the late teens, say 1919, some fellows decided that instead of getting on the train and going home and then coming back the next day say on a sunday they just pitch a tent in the woods and eventually that became a tent colony where you shouldn't think of little pup tents you should think of platform tents on wooden floors and then the club decided that that doesn't look so good so they told them they had to build little cottages that were could be only 680 square feet in the beginning But just like the number of hotel rooms we talked about and the number of holes, they had 72 of those. And people would come out and spend most of the summer living in their tiny little cottage out in the countryside. It was better than being downtown.
2: Are there any of those cottages still? Do any of them still exist?
0: Well, um, Yes and no. The, none of those still exist because over time, the, uh, the footprint of the cottages got bigger. So eventually, they became a little, a little bit larger than 680 square feet, and then people started adding garages and so on. So these days, there are 27 cottages that live that exist in the original land of the of the uh, of the colon, what's called the colony. Now all of our, no, all no one's colony. living in
2: the six hundred square foot house in the colony.
0: No one. Is, no, no, no. <laughs> it is, it, you know, we we have a you know. There's a couple of guys with six hundred square foot living rooms, but um, or or bigger. But they're they're basically they're 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 weekend cottages, but they're nice. They're nice.
2: Well, before we jump in the architecture, Andy, I'm going right to you next after this one. But can you talk a little bit, Bob, about? Uh, how progressive the club was, Olympia Fields, when it came to women members and women playing the course?
0: Well, the the club from the beginning, and I actually think this has something to do with stag, but from the beginning, the club didn't view itself as being um, a very elite kind of club. It was going to be open to all kinds of people, so there were policemen and teachers in the membership uh, and that's going to happen if you're going to have 1,200 members. And they kept the the, the fees fairly fairly low. Um, with regard to women, Olympia was one of a handful, if not the only club, of the, of the age where women could join as regular members from the beginning. Um, now, that was not all goodness and light, but when we got to four courses, one of the courses was always open to women. And as I said, Stag emphasized competition. So they went out and let themselves be known. You might even say recruited some of the best women players in the Midwest so that Olympia became a a, a bit of a citadel for great women players of the 1920s and 1930s. Um, The first two time major champion in the history of women's golf happened to be an Olympia member back in the day. Um, she's also the youngest w- woman, uh, youngest woman member, youngest woman major champion at age eighteen um, in uh, 1931, and she won the 1931 and 1933 uh, Western Opens, the women's Western Open. Her name was June Beebe, and June June Beebe, You know, pretty soon after those victories and a few more, she. She hung up her clubs and um, uh, formed a family. Um, but in the 1920s, the, one of the real rock stars of golf was a woman named uh, Rose Jones, who uh, won the Women's Western Amateur. And she won the North and South at Pinehurst. She won the Women's uh, Championship uh, at uh, Pebble Beach. Not just the club championship, but actually a tournament championship, um, where she beat Marion uh in the final round. so and she used to travel the country. Her husband described himself as the uh, world's first golf widower, and uh, she was she was quite a player. And then, in the 1930s, s, um, you know I, I mentioned I'm a professor at the University of Chicago, and when we make a claim to have a Nobel Prize winner, we Reclaim anybody who stopped to use the restroom. So <laughs> I like that. Um, I like this. So for a while, um, uh, we had uh, a, a very well-known golfer from the Midwest, Lucille Robinson, Lucille Robinson Man, actually, um, and uh, she was runner-up in the Western Open and won a couple of Western amateurs. She's got an unbelievable run of state championships in Iowa, Wisconsin, and Nebraska. But she lived in Chicago for a while, and the first thing she did was she joined Olympia Fields. And then, of course, later on, we had the great Carol Mann, who was our second two-time major champion, um, and who uh, grew up in the club from about
2: age 12. So it's like the home of champions. It is
0: the home of—you that. Uh, you stole that from me, buddy. I didn't even know you said said it. I'm going to copyright
2: it now, Bob. You're out. Because we've always
0: claimed to be the host of champions. And I said, no, we are the home of champions. And we have actually uh, displays outside the women's locker room for exactly that purpose.
2: Now, let me jump into for you, Andy, here. So one of the cool things when I visited Olympia Fields, I was fortunate enough I knew about the four courses. Uh, I didn't know about the original uh, Compass uh, logo, which was the four points of the compass signifying the four courses. Four courses, Olympia Fields, three top of the world architects. If you could, Andy, maybe dive in a little bit about the, th- the three main architects. Maybe we can touch on a little bit of Donald Ross and his, they were in, is at least being considered, but walk through Tom Bendelow, Willie Watson, and Willie Park.
1: Well, that's 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 a that's a big story there are four courses you could probably dive in for a number of minutes on each course but I think I think probably the, the, the easiest way to describe that is as you uh, insinuate about the logo what was cool about that uh, the, the clock tower of the of the clubhouse is each face of that clock faced towards one of the T's uh, of each of the course so if you imagine this railway that it's actually you know I, I believe it's coming in somewhat of a, a north-south orientation, a little bit on an angle. Uh, so the the course number one was probably the most western course, if you will, but it had a first tee out towards the tracks. Uh, it was the Tom Bendelow course. And then each each side of the clock tower faced uh, the first tee of each one of the four courses ultimately. So they had already kind of known that those four courses were coming in, and they designed the building around or that clock tower around that, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, you know, the, the idea of, of building this course at that time, you probably have to go back to how Tom Bendelow was, was working in that period of time. You know, you can imagine that because this place, this area was so remote that, you know, I don't know what their budget was at that time, but I'm sure there was still some risk involved. Uh, so Tom Bendelow probably came as a, as a high value architect on top of the, his reputation, you know, with you know, it, reputation of, of working with Spalding and things like that. Uh, interesting as I went through all the, the historic photographs. You can, you can tell at photographs and all the reports, you know, Bob's got a really good, uh, memory, but also a really good catalog of, of all the minutes of, of how these courses evolved. You know, Tom Bendelow built the first what first course to, uh, Probably out the out of, just just to start the facility and get people playing golf. William Watson, uh, you know, he, not sure if you call him Willie or William. I've always called him William. Uh, I think uh, he despised. I'm the Scottish Willie. Willie. Willie Watson. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he he was in the area, uh, done a lot of work in the Midwest. I'm sure Collis Harry Collis and Jack Duray that were in the area had something to do uh, with bringing these guys in. Uh, they they sort of knew something about it. But, but William Watson did number two and actually if you look at some of the old photographs is some of the most interesting bunkering uh, of, of the of the four courses you can see it in, in a lot of the shadows and things like that. So the second course kind of evolved out if the first course was the westernmost course then it went in a counterclock direction two kind of came out to the east and southeast then number three was directly, east of the clubhouse and then the north course the fourth course is is kind of on the north side and uh on the top of the clock tower if you will uh so the third course was a collaboration between uh, bendelow and uh and and watson again some interesting bunkering and if you actually look at the aerial photograph it's between those two courses if you compare the two are some of the most uh interesting and uh some of those inspiration that i've been using i think for the the work that we're hoping to get done on the South course because just, it's just really rudimentary and heavy shadows and things like that, uh, weird shapes. So, uh, I think also of those courses, uh, Willie Park Jr. was probably uh, responsible for some of that work as well because some of the, uh, the the information we pulled up is that at Willie Park was hired to, to consult on the first three courses and... I don't know. I think there's a lot of debate as to why that is, but you know, one thing that kept coming up often in the in the, the in the minutes is they had some turf quality issues and questions about how to grow bread or grass and some issues with greens. And so I think Willie Park was brought in to kinda of help out with some of that.
2: Interesting. And yeah. so
1: so to the point of when Donald Ross was, was mentioned and why why they didn't ultimately go with Donald Ross, I would like to believe and I don't know what Bob's opinion on this is, but I would like to believe that You know Willie Park Jr. probably had some connection to Harry Collis and Jack DeRay, which had had done some work in the the area. They brought Willie Park over to help on the first three courses. So he was probably already on site, already working. And so if there was a little bit of a bake-off between Donald Ross and Willie Park, I would imagine it was because he was already kind of familiar with the site and has already been working on the area. So it was probably a natural move to just let Willie Park do the fourth course. Uh, but that that's just more conjecture.
0: You you see Park's name popping up way earlier than when he started um, uh, the final work on Number Four, and and in fact, a a golf writer of the time who wrote under the pseudonym um, Lockenvar um, uh, in uh, what what was it in Golfdom magazine said that Park had come in and he reversed the order of play on number three, which was the Bendelow and Watson collaboration. So I think his fingerprints are all over things more than people had previously uh, understood. One of my favorite moments with Andy is when we were walking around the golf courses once and I said, well, you know, Park consulted on these greens on what is now the south course. And as we walked up to number, the green of of the 10th hole, he pointed to a ridge on the side of the, of the green and said, yeah, see that there? That's Park. That would not have been Bendelow or Watson. So his, 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 his influence is in a lot of places. And one of the other things that should be mentioned is that the land that number four sits on the north course, it's kind of similar to Sunningdale. And, his, and Sunningdale was his really first big triumph in England. And I think people uh, in the club who are very knowledgeable about architecture themselves probably recognized that and wanted to use park because of that.
2: Bob, before I swing this back to Andy, let me ask you a question. Of the four courses, I, and I'm thinking of Shinnecock here, and, and there might not be an answer to this, but Shinnecock in its very early days, also very progressive with women members. And they had their own golf course that was designed for women in the original design, 1890s now. Um, were any of these four courses thought of as a ladies' course? Do we know?
0: Well, if there was one that was thought of as the ladies' course, it would have been Watson's number two. Um, it was uh, a little bit less difficult than the others. So that that would have been the uh, the, the women's course. And in fact, the, the first tee of that course was close to a part of the clubhouse where um, I already mentioned that the, the the bar and grill for the men was called the 73rd hole. Well, the women had their own 73rd hole. And uh, they could walk right out from their 73rd hole to the golf course on which they most frequently played. But it wasn't a women's only course or just a women's course. It, uh, it actually hosted the, uh, the uh, first Western Open in
2: 1920,
0: played it, uh, at uh, – at olympia fields it was course number one and and number two were used in that event
2: andy back to you let me ask you a lot of people know of willie park uh willie park jr specifically from the architectural standpoint of his work um tom bendelow was prolific one of the most prolific architects in the history of the united states but a lot of people don't know a lot about his work because a lot of it's been touched up over time or just outright changed by donald ross and a whole slew of others Bendilo is hard to put a finger on from a design standpoint because his designs were all over the place. What are your thoughts on Bendalo and his work? Like, how do you put, how, how do you describe the nature of his design?
1: Yeah, the, the, the Johnny Appleseed of golf, uh, if you will, right? That was kind of coined. Yeah. So... You know, I, it it really is hard. I, I think I've done a fair bit of research over the years. I'm actually working on another uh, bendelow up north in Milwaukee. It was, uh, they, they have 16 original bendelow greens there, uh, and they're really, really interesting. And, and they're, and from a guy who grew up in that area that kind of knew what I thought maybe Tom Bendelow was or who it was, uh, uh, didn't really associate that kind of interest in those types of of creative green slopes and so he's been really hard to put a put a a kind of finger on what he actually who he was as an architect uh primarily because not much of his work really exists in its true form but also i got to believe with the amount of projects that he has been accredited to is he just couldn't be involved as much as you would like to as uh, even back then everyone knew that they needed to be a, a part of construction he you know, the whole adage of uh, 18 stakes on a Sunday afternoon type of thing. There's no doubt there has to be some truth to that. Uh, so I, my the way I've kind of uh, uh, narrowed it down is, he, you know, as he went from, he evolved in his career away from Spaulding and, and started to go to work for a, a local company uh, that was designing and building golf courses. I think it was American Park Builders. He was the in-house uh, architect. They were doing land planning. Uh, so I found some really uh, interesting, cool land development plans back then. So he had a propensity f- for this. Uh, and I think when he actually put his time and energy into the golf courses, uh, he produced some really creative, good work. And I think there's a lot of that at the South course. Uh, and there was a lot of that up at the University Club of Milwaukee and in some other courses that I've that I've seen. But Lord knows, if you go to some other Bendelos, uh, I just saw one recently and uh that is just not that great and yeah. so uh he gets I would a bad rap
2: doesn't he i mean I, he gets a bad rap for I think unfairly rap for bad rap yeah. in, in a lot of
1: cases it's it's due it's 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 definitely uh, <laughs> warranted. Yeah.
2: yeah when he's working for Spalding yeah you're right it's 18 stakes don't know if there's a lot of interest in those course but you see courses like uh the south course you see the courses like i i, I I go on and on about it. People have seen it on Twitter and et cetera. Temple Terrace. I mean, I just think yeah. there are some amazing aspects, rolling features, beautiful greens. Some are still original. Some are not that really jump out at you on those courses that he spent time on. It's much like I don't want to sell this out on Donald Ross, but the courses that Donald Ross spent the most time on are the, are very noticeable compared to yep. those ones that he yep. may have had his associates work on, and maybe he just drew him up in his office, but never visited the course. So
1: yeah, it's probably fair.
2: Very much so. But you know, because Bendelow comes even prior to that, I think there's an easy way to throw away his work as, you know, 18 stakes on a Sunday afternoon. And that's unfair, in my opinion. Would you agree? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to try to make any anything more out of him as an architect than what he was. He certainly did a huge amount of work. And I and there's no doubt that uh, you know, a lot of his work is good. There's probably a lot that isn't as yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll say the sixth hole, the sixth hole at uh, uh, the current sixth hole, which was designed as the eighth hole on the south course, uh, is a little short drivable, not drivable, a driving pitch uh, par four down the hill cross Butterfield Creek up to this little ridge green is is one of the coolest volcano type of uh, par fours that you'll find anywhere. And, and at the time that it was built, uh, local writer uh, showcased it as one of the best holes in all of Chicago and called it the pride of Olympia Fields, and so he's he has some and and it's one of the one of the holes that I think people should know more about it at, on the South Course. It's an awesome hole, and uh, but where I was going with that is that I don't know by and this is more my opinion, not based on any real true fact, but I don't know how much Tom Benlow knew about agronomy and the the idea of the the idea of grasses and construction i think he left those decisions to others and if you see some of these old photographs of the first course and even some of the the, on the second and third course you know they had a huge amount of clearing to do and in 1916 that was very expensive these huge oak trees that were all around lowland areas one of the things about the south course is it actually sits down in the valley butterfield creek cuts through it so you're you actually cross Butterfield Creek, I think, 12 different times. Certainly not one of the easier you know, uh, courses for anybody that can't get the ball airborne, especially back then. Uh, but he put, he left a huge amount of trees around greens, very close to greens, very close to tees, very close to fairways where they just carved through. And so I think the south course and a lot of places around on the north course as well, they kind of left a lot of these old trees that I think uh, had some impact on, on how that course was originally constructed. And so, you know, one of the, the issues I think with the South Course beginning is that it flooded a lot, it had some drainage issues, and, and had some problems growing grass. Um, I don't know if that was all Tom Bendelow, but um, so anyway, I, I think that's an, an interesting part of Bendelow because how much work that he did, I'm curious as to what his strengths were.
2: Yeah. And how about before we jump into majors, then we'll come back to architecture again. Um, let's talk a little bit about William Watson. Uh, I know the name fairly well. I know a lot of people don't know much about Willie Watson, but can you share with folks Willie Watson's design history in the United States? What might he been known for from a strategic uh, design standpoint?
1: So, you know, not being a complete William Watson expert, I do know, you know, he came, he came over from Scotland, I think, around... The turn of the century, 1900 or so, uh, I think he landed in the Midwest. Uh, the course that everyone's talking about these days that is well worth anyone's trip is in the northern Michigan and at Belvedere. Uh, yes, he also that so,
2: amazing.
1: Yeah, uh, Charlevoix, I think is where. Uh, Minicata Country Club. Uh, he's got his name at Harding Park, so his name just was recently mentioned around you know, the PGA Championship at Harding. Uh, he migrated out to California, so he did a fair bit of work out there. Uh, so, uh, I think, uh, I actually worked on a William Watson course in the San Francisco Bay area, San Jose country club. So I had a chance to, to dive into their, their archives and they had some really cool old photos and some drawings of, of his work. So I would probably say, you know, he, he has very intricate, intricate, uh, greens. Uh, some might even say a bit rudimentary. Uh, interestingly, I found uh, A.W. A. Tillinghast letter when he came through San Jose Country Club uh, in the 30s, uh, writing about the William Watson Greens. He was he was asking to have them renovated. He called he called those uh, w. Watson Greens of the most antiquated type. Ooh, so. Tilly. <laughs>
0: So <laughs> hold back, Tilly. Uh, he, was,
1: he was driving. He was driving renovation work for himself. But uh, you know, we had these old photographs of some punch bowl greens with some some bumps around, and I I think as I look at uh, the aerial photograph out on at Olympia Fields, that you know that's what I'm saying. Some of these interesting kind of sharp, edgy bunkering uh, is very evident, and not just circles. A lot of interesting shapes. Some some. Uh, serpentine bunkers uh, a number of bunkers complex you know uh, grouped together in, in a complex so uh, I think I don't know if there's anything that really jumps out other than maybe you know if you go to Belvedere you know that it's just a real subtle simple green design and uh, all of his drawings always kind of go back to how uh, the putting surface relates to the the contours around it so uh, I think he also routed right the yeah, of course. Well, but it's it's hard to say now because most of the work that he did at Olympia Fields is now covered in homes, so it's hard to really study it there.
0: We have one green, um, I think. Andy, do, do we not? The no, ninth yeah, green is yeah. one of is his.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So so the current eighth and ninth hole uh, at uh, on the South Course are the routing uh, the of the first and the eighteenth hole of his of his course number two.
2: And Andy, how do we know that? Walk me through the detective work there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. it, it. So as they as they started to sell off property, uh, they they got to the end of course number one. Uh, had a couple holes six and uh, five, five and six. Uh, yeah, five and six uh, were up against a a portion portion of land that was easy to to sell off. And when they lost two holes, they had to come up with two more holes. And as they migrated towards the clubhouse, the next two holes that were that were able to get back to the clubhouse were the first and 18th holes of the the number 2 course. So now when you actually go from uh, you know from from hole number 7 on the south course you jump across a fair bit of walk to go to the the 8th tee. That's that's actually going from the old ninth hole to the to the old first tee of the second well oh,
2: that's really cool
1: uh, the second cool. course yeah so and then the other interesting part is the driving range that the practice facility at olympia fields is one and 18 of the third course so that there's no remnant at all of those golf holes but they combine those two holes to create enough space uh for the uh, the driving range there isn't that right bob that's the first and 18 of, of those,
0: those are the you're absolutely right it's the first and 18th and when you when you drive into the club these days, you would be driving down a, you'll drive down a road about a third of a mile or so, and going along your left would have been the, uh, the second hole of the third course. Right. Um, and the third course was a really good golf course. Um, it's, it's too bad that it's been lost.
1: Yeah.
2: I guess m- maybe before we transition to that, uh, let's, before we go into majors, maybe let's talk about that loss. Bob, used to be a four golf course facility. We're now at two. Uh, walk us through. How did, how did that come about?
0: Well, along came the Great Depression. So in 1929, 1930, the membership peaked at uh, 1,200 families. Um, people could sell their memberships for a good price. Everything was roaring, two orchestras, the whole thing. Um, and then the depression hit and, you know, we, you, living in the age that we live in, we can't quite appreciate what a big deal it was. You know, dues were only $15 a month and people still couldn't afford that kind of thing. they $15 and those, their dollars, but still that would be less than $200 today. And um, people started leaving in droves. And the membership fell and fell and fell, and they were having a lot of financial difficulty. And then towards the end of the 30s and into the early 1940s, they felt like they were turning it around. And more than just a little bit, ironically, the, the club magazine in, for December of 1941, which would have come out on like December the 1st, said, in the black, we're going to be in the black, and within a week we were in World War II. So by 1944, the 1,200 members had fallen to right around 300. So you know, roughly 75 percent of the membership had departed, um, and that went on. And truthfully, it was it was not just the depression; it was the change in the character and the composition of the South Side of Chicago, and. They had been a destination club, and the people who used it as a destination club no, no longer lived there. So they had to make a tough decision. And the decision they made after a lot of debate was to go from four courses to two. And that was done right at the end of the war, around 1945. That's when the decision was made. And uh, that turned the club around. Um, And it it prospered in subsequent years.
2: Was there ever a time where the existence of Olympia Fields in general was in doubt? I mean, you go from 1,200 to to 300. There has to have been some real fear of a complete shutdown, like many courses, throughout the Great Depression.
0: Yes. Um, And, you know, they went through bankruptcies. And it was a reorganization, so the the going to two courses was a reorganization of the finances and and basis of the club. But really, that's what saved the organization because you just couldn't sustain a four-golf course destination club in the way you could in the booming times of the 1920s. Eventually, it became a a neighborhood club. It went from being a destination club to a neighborhood club. And uh, that sustained it through the 1990s
2: yeah what was the next I mean, after 45 uh we closed the two courses uh, was it an immediate bounce back from that action or uh, when did it have real sustainability a,
0: a lot of people started joining at that point in part because they sold the land for real estate so people started building homes on the land that had been the two golf courses um now I kind of feel sometimes, you know, why'd you sell off that land over there? Why'd you sell that right there? But it really was an act that saved the club. And the, the people who led the club in those days were uh, both wise and brave. Um, so the the club grew and prospered, 50s, 1960s. Um, and then, it, of course, in the 1960s is when they started bringing back championship Yeah, golf I think that's fascinating,
2: Bob, that you mentioned that. the The idea of actually selling the land... Actually helped with the transition from this, you know, countryside club to your neighborhood club. Uh, that's really fascinating to me. That aspect that, in the hardest of times, you sell the land, you sell it to homes. Homes feed the club.
1: Well, another another kind of interesting part of that evolution that's actually somewhat uh, positive or uh, a good thing for us today is they're, they're, they are still located in the village of Olympia Fields, which they they incorporated. I think around the time that they started the first course. And so they're not part of Chicago. They're not part of any other municipality. They're, they're their own uh, municipality, if you will, their own village. And and so to me, that's – it's as we've kind of driven through the initial conversations about work at the club, has been very beneficial to be on, you know, kind of their own standalone uh, you know, village. We're, so.
0: even, we're actually more standalone than even that because um, – actually the club is not incorporated into the village it's in unincorporated cook county and surrounded by the village um and back in the 1920s that ne'er-do-well beach i told fellow i told you he's the one who incorporated the village over the objections of the club's board so, so that- actually we're not part we're, we are not part of the village we are just a little piece of un, unincorporated cook county
1: but in yes. terms of, of, of just how how everything works, uh, uh, just through the club is is a really interesting uh, education I've had through this process. you a unique one,
2: Andy, versus uh, what you've dealt with in the past?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 way more uh, way more flexible and 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 been more uh, knowing. I mean, we still have Cook County, and so anybody that knows from that area what what it's like to work in Cook County. Uh, but it has been it's just been an education it's been fun to get get to know but the other point I was just going to tell you too is, is you asked a question about how the club is, has reached a level of sustainability uh, we always use that word these days but I think it it really is a an interesting uh, you know kind of juxtaposition of of golf these days that without the tournament pedigree the professional tournament pedigree of this facility I don't think it would have been able to reach the level of sustainability that it has today, and so it has been interesting to see exactly how, uh, just from a pure economic standpoint, and an attraction standpoint, and a notoriety standpoint, how important having tournament golf and that and that lineage is to this club. And it's uh, and now you know we're hosting the BMW Championship next week, which is going to be you know a, another little. Uh, you know, kind of notch in their belt in terms of how how it's tried to continue to test the best players in the world, and I think that reliance and that that lineage is is so important to how the club will sustain itself going in the future.
0: I completely agree with Andy. And um, just one little symbol of that, you know, we mentioned the size of the men's locker room, and that number twelve hundred keeps coming up. Twelve, there were over twelve hundred lockers in the men's locker room. Prior, prior to uh, World War II, or prior to the reduction in the number of courses from four to two. So they took 600 lockers out in 1945 and created big alleys where there had been a row of lockers. So everybody had a lot of space. And we still have, I, I think the number is 634 lockers, and we've run out of lockers that. Um, So the the club has been booming in terms of membership, especially younger people, um, most of whom when the time comes to become a regular member, they convert to regular.
2: You know what? This is a great place to, to, we're going to end part one right now, and we'll come back with the majors and how it shaped the aura of Olympia Fields. Uh, So on to the next one. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed part one. Of the history of Olympia Fields with our special guests Bob Topel and Andy Staples. Episode 45 will take off right where we left off, jumping into the Western Open, the major championships, and the plans to restore this American original to the treasure of Chicago. Until then, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.